Let's stand up. Everybody close your eyes, if you will, if you're willing. So just close your eyes with me right now, and I want you to imagine a golden, just a small ball of golden light. Just let it kind of fill your vision and let it grow and grow until all that you see in your mind's eye is the golden light, knowing that that light comes from God and inside of it there is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to just imagine yourself entering into that place. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that we come together as a temple of God in the Spirit. Pray that your energy and love and life, truth and peace penetrate every area of our life. And we thank you that the light overcomes the darkness. And so it is. Amen. You may be seated. How's everybody feeling today? Everybody feeling good? All right, so we're gonna, we're gonna do something today because it is the Pascha, if I say this, the Pascha season. Does anybody know what that means? It's Lent. It's the time of year that uh, the church around the world, Pascha is the word for Passover. So it's the time when the church around the world is commemorating and thinking about and talking about the passion of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. So I thought we might as well get in the flow of that for the next few weeks. And I have some different ideas about uh, the cross than uh, some of my contemporaries. <laughs> and last time I did a message along these lines, they were sure to let me know how in error I was. So rather than trying to say, uh, and, and here's my thing, I want all of us to be free to have our own experience and our own knowledge and our own ideas. Um, I don't want to get stuck into a group think mentality where everybody has to think like me because I just think that y'all would don't want to do that. <laughs> don't want don't want to do that. So I want to be able to present information and ideas and then give you the freedom to enter in, try those on, see if you like them, enter in, kind of see if it works for you. If it doesn't, then, you know, obviously throw it out and we can still be in fellowship together. Amen. So rather than try to say, this is what the cross means, um, I decided to come at it from the aspect of, this is what the cross means to me. And then if anybody wants to take issue with that, then they can go ahead. So, not anybody here ever does, but we're online. And uh, Anyway, there's more people being blessed, far more people being blessed and reached and impacted and set free and experiencing God and joy and peace at levels they've never experienced before. I hear from them every single week, um, but we also, there's a few detractors out there. But hey, uh, Jesus said, if you're not being uh, persecuted, actually Paul said it in one of his letters, if you're not being persecuted, then you're doing something wrong. <laughs> Jesus actually said, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. So so that's how they treated the false prophets. So anyway, moving on. All right, so let's take a look, first of all, what the cross has meant down through the ages. Because we have a tendency to, how many of you know, especially in our modern culture, we have a tendency to uh, be very short-sighted, and we have the tendency to believe that wherever we're at is the height of wherever 
anything's ever been, <laughs> right? We're the most, in some people's perspectives, we're the most evolved, we're the most educated, we're the most knowledgeable. For a lot of people, we're the most advanced in terms of our faith and whatever. Uh, and we just don't take a broad view of things. We, we have a tendency to think that our experience, what we heard, what we believe, what we read, that must be the way that it is. And we discount the reality and the fact uh, that the, the, you are not the sole person on the planet. Your group, your little group, your little tiny group of people is not the sole group on the planet. You say, what do you mean little tiny group? My, my group is millions of believers around the world. Well, there's about 8 billion people on the planet, so even a million is pretty tiny in that respect, and I just refuse to believe that God is only talking to that small little splinter of humanity that's out there. You are very much in the minority. So we need to recognize that. But not even as Christians, you're very much in the minority when you get locked into one point of view because there's something like 30,000 different Christian de- or denominations that identify themselves as Christian. But then when you take, when you back up even further and you take a historical view of things and you realize that historically the church hasn't even believed some of the things that you believe, now you really got an issue. So you are either, I mean, what do we do with that? Do we humble ourselves and say, maybe we don't have everything figured out from A to Z like we think we do, and maybe our way isn't the only way or the right way, uh, and maybe we can take a look at some other stuff. So what I'm going to present to you is very well researched, and it's facts, and you can do with it whatever you want. Okay? I think you'll find a beauty in the cross, by the time we're done, I think you'll find a beauty in the cross that maybe you never saw before. Because one of the beauties of uh, Christianity, one of the beauties of the scriptures, one of the beauties especially of the cross is that it can have a myriad of different meanings to different people that gives them life and hope in different cultural settings throughout the ages. All right? So, in the early church, and that means the first and second centuries, the cross did not mean that God saved you from the wrath of God so that you could go to heaven. Primarily, if you study any scholar who knows what they're talking about from that time period, the cross meant, uh, was a picture for believers uh, in a culture that was contrary to them, that was contrary to their faith, and that they were really stirring it up. Uh, if you think about in our country, and again, I'm not judging this as right or wrong or good or bad. I'm just presenting you something that maybe you can relate to. In our country during the football season last year, uh, certain um, athletes decided not to stand for the national anthem, and you saw massive offense taking place among people who feel very passionately about our country, very patriotic about our flag, and all of those things, right? You saw that response. Now, you have to understand, with that in mind, if you come with me back in time to the Greco-Roman world, Caesar was Lord. And you had to make that confession, otherwise you were not being a patriotic Roman. You also had to serve Roman gods. So the moment a believer in the first century said, Jesus is Lord, they were saying Caesar wasn't. It was worse than not standing for the national anthem. (laughs) It'd be almost like flag burning. And you're also in a very violent culture that won't tolerate that, that doesn't have the same level of tolerance. Thank God we have some level of tolerance still in this country. Back then, you didn't have that. So you have uh, anyone who's a Christian is creating a political upheaval and is facing persecution and imminent death for their faith. 
So the way that they found meaning in the cross was that they looked at Jesus as a martyr himself who died for his faith. And so it wasn't this salvation act that we think of it today. It was you're encouraged by the church fathers. You were encouraged to follow the path of Jesus into martyrdom. And in fact, some of them got so radical and went so far as to say, if you didn't become a martyr, you wouldn't make it to heaven. Because you weren't following in the path of Christ. Jesus, in, in, the, in the Gospels, this is actually how he portrays his own death. There's nowhere in the Gospels that you'll find anywhere that Jesus said that he died a death to satisfy an angry God. Or to, to, to somehow make you right with God in that sense. He, here's what he says about himself. In Matthew 20, verse 18, he says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. So, ever since the Reformation, and we'll get there in a minute, but ever since the Reformation, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and whether you realize it or not, that's why people tell you today that you have to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because it's only by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, they may not tell you the mechanics of it, but it's only by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior that you can escape the wrath of God. Now, they might not tell you exactly how that works out, but the foundation of it is, is that God was angry with you and he had to punish his son Jesus on the cross and you have to receive him as savior in order to be made right with God. (laughs) But I got to tell you in the scriptures, the way it is, is it's not sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's God manifested in the flesh in the hands of angry sinners. It's just the truth. You see it here again in Acts 2.23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death. And then he says, but God has raised him from the dead. So nowhere in there is God responsible for the crucifixion. But you can see how then Jesus is dying this martyr's death, and so the early Christians who are going to be facing the prospect of being martyrs themselves are encouraged to find meaning in the passion and the death of Jesus and the cross. They're encouraged to find meaning for their cultural context, for their unique situation, in a way that other believers said would motivate them to follow in his example. So every believer found meaning in the cross by being encouraged to be martyred for their faith. That's just the truth. Now, Elaine Pagels is an interesting scholar. Um, she received her doctorate from Harvard University in 1970, and she actually worked on the translations of the Nag Hammadi Library. Now, for those of you that may not know what the Nag Hammadi Library is, and just to differentiate it, because there's a lot of confusion out there, a lot of people think they confuse the Dead Sea Scrolls with the Nag Hammadi Library because they were both findings in the early part of the 20th century that changed the way we thought about our faith. The Dead Sea Scrolls were a group of uh, writings that predate by centuries what was in the Nag Hammadi Library, and it's primarily Jewish writings, well it's not primarily, it is Jewish writings that changed the way we thought about the Jewish faith during the second temple period when Jesus was living. The Nag Hammadi library is centuries later and it is 
uh, Christian writings that were preserved because the Orthodox Church was so threatened by anything that did not agree with them, sound familiar, that they said the bishops sent out a ruling to all the Christian communities and said you have to burn all the other Gospels and books that you have except Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the reason there can only be four Gospels is because there are four directions of the wind, there are four corners of the earth. That was their reasoning. true. So they sent out and said, all these other Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas and these so-called Gnostic writings, have to be uh, destroyed. And so you have these devout Christian, this devout Christian community in Egypt that refused to do that. They buried the writings, and they were found um, in the 20th century, totally something other than the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you can look at it this way. The Dead Sea Scrolls relate to Judaism. The Nag Hammadi Library relates to early Christianity. So they find these scrolls. So Elaine Pagels was one of the scholars who actually worked in the translating of the actual scrolls from the Nag Hammadi Library. Okay? She says this, Contrary to Orthodox sources, which interpret Christ's death as a sacrifice redeeming humanity from guilt and sin, she st- let me back up before I read the quote. Everybody look at me, because I, I got a little bit sidetracked. Her expertise was early Christianity within the first two centuries. And I've heard an interview from her where she said, I was just sure I was going to go to seminary. I was going to find out that there was this pristine, one pristine, pure Christian faith that was exactly the way Jesus handed it down to his disciples. And I would know what the truth was. And she said, the more I got into it, the more I realized that that was definitely not the case and that Christians did not agree with each other on several different things. You can even find that in the Bible in Acts chapter 15. They didn't agree. Finally, James has to settle the argument by standing up like daddy and saying, okay, it's going to be my way because we can't settle this any other way, right? You find in Galatians that Peter and Paul disagreed with each other. Uh, Some scholars think that John's writing in the book of Revelation to the church of Ephesus, when he says, you have tested those who said they were apostles and were not but do lie, that that was the apostle Paul. And Paul does in fact say in his letter to Timothy at the end of his life that the church at Ephesus had rejected him and his ministry. So we have this idea that everybody just agreed and everybody got along and it's completely false. And so that's what she said she began to discover as she began to look at this. So here is her opinion of the varying ideas and attitudes about the death of Christ in those first two centuries. The one I showed you about martyrdom is the one that's held by the Orthodox Church, the organized, structured religion that became a tool of the state to control people. She says this, contrary to orthodox sources, which interprets Christ's death as a sacrifice redeeming humanity from guilt and sin, this gospel, one of the gospels found in the Nag Hammadi Library, the gospel of truth, sees the crucifixion as the occasion for discovering the divine self within. So just want you to know, when I talk about some of this stuff, I'm very much in line with what top scholars in the world say was part of at least some expressions of early Christianity. First two centuries. Okay. The first theory 
So we're going to talk about what's called atonement theories. Because here's the thing, guys. We know that Jesus died for our sins. We know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If we believe the Bible, if we believe that's an accurate testimony about uh, things that Jesus said, then we, we, we understand the why of what happened. Right? What we don't know, because the scriptures don't tell us, even those of us that take our, our source from scriptures, they don't tell us the how. How does Jesus' death save us? And so when we're talking, using the term atonement, we're using a theological term, or a term that theologians use, to talk about the sacrifice, God's sacrifice or giving of his son to the earth, and the fact that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Understand? So because it's not spelled out for us in the Bible, the church down through the ages has had to come up with what they call atonement theories. In other words, this is our theory about how this works, based on certain things. And the oldest one that we can find is from uh, a guy named Irenaeus, who really his writings, along with Justin Martyr, are the earliest writings that we have outside of what's in the uh, Bible uh, of what early Christians taught, thought, and believed. Now, tradition tells us that Irenaeus was discipled by a person named Polycarp. Everybody say Polycarp. And Polycarp was directly discipled by John the Apostle who walked with Jesus. Got it? Irenaeus' theory about why Jesus died had absolutely nothing to do with satisfying the wrath of God. Absolutely nothing. His theory is called, by theologians, the recapitulation theory. And it's based on this statement, which is a direct quote of Irenaeus. He said, Christ became man that we might become divine. Thank you. We, we put that through the speakers just, you know, so just to encourage you to clap. That's Christine behind the, she's running the YouTube for us, I think. I think it was Christine, yeah. It's just like there's nobody there. I look there, there's nobody clapping. I just hear it. So. I'm just kidding. It's my angel. There you go. So... In the recapitulation view of the atonement, Christ is seen as the new Adam who succeeds where the first Adam failed. And this view means that Christ restored humanity to become the bearers of the divine image. It kind of sounds like the gospel of truth, doesn't it? That the death of Christ is there to reveal the divine self within. People think this is heresy, but Irenaeus is honored as orthodox by the Orthodox churches, including the Roman Catholic Church and all of the daughters of the Reformation, if you will, Lutherans and Presbyterians. And nobody thinks Irenaeus is a heretic except evangelicals that can't handle the fact that you're telling them that they have a divine nature. Just, that's just the truth. I'm not, I'm not trying to be ugly or mean. I'm just saying you may not know that, but that's the truth. All right, let's go to the next one. The next one's called the ransom theory. This comes out of Mark's, uh, some statements that Jesus made. We'll look at this one in Mark's gospel. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Now, let me ask you a question. What's a ransom? What's a ransom? It's a payment. Payment for what? When somebody's been kidnapped, right? Somebody's kidnapped and what? Held for ransom. So you pay off what? The one who's got them kidnapped, who's holding them in bondage, right? You pay them off and then they do what? They go free, right? So this was the predominant view of the church for centuries. It's called the ransom theory of the atonement. But you have to ask yourself this question because it's not in the text. You have to fill in the blank for yourself. To whom is the ransom paid? To whom did Jesus give his life as a ransom for many? And so nobody in the early church thought God was holding the church in captivity. That doesn't even make sense. You don't pay a ransom to yourself. You don't hide your kid in the in the basement and then write yourself a ransom note. Take, that'd be like me taking Josiah, put him in the basement, and then write myself a note. Aaron, unless you give me $1,000 or $10,000, I am not going to release Josiah back into your custody. Signed. He's running. Josiah, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> I should have said your brother Elijah, huh? <laughs> it's taken off. Oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> it's my son, for those of you who can't see. And then I sign it, Aaron. And then I think, oh, i got to go to the bank. And what, what, what bank do I put it in? So obviously... The ransom didn't have to be paid to God, so who did it have to be paid to? They said, the devil. So what they said was that God handed his son over to the devil as payment. The devil took him into death, and then God did this bait and switch thing. Where he gave him, but then because he didn't have any uh, legal reasons for being there, God raised him from the dead and got him back. So it's like God sent Jesus... Uh, to the, it's like putting a tracking device in the money. That's called the ransom theory. That comes from Oregon, who was considered the most knowledgeable, most scholarly of the church fathers, and he lived from 184 to 253. See what I mean when you step back historically and you take a look at things? how your perspective can begin to change. If nothing else, let today broaden your perspective. Next one's called the Christus Victor View. Now, the Christus Victor View is uh, put forward by a German theologian by the name of Gustav Allen. Now, what he did was he went back and read the ransom theory with a different set of eyes, if you will. And he reinterpreted the ransom theory and said that man was held captive to sin, death, and the devil, and Jesus' work on the cross and his subsequent resurrection defeated these enemies. Because here was the problem with the ransom theory. Was it really integrious of God to say, okay, here's my son as a ransom. Oh, you got him. Nope, now I'm going to take him back. They began to have a moral problem with that. They began to say, in fact, one of the church fathers said that the devil through deceit took humanity captive and God through deceit set humanity free because he deceived the devil. So they began to say, we've got a real problem with this. And you'll see this by the 12th century. Now, keep in mind, the ransom theory was the view the church held for 1,200 years. 
It wasn't until the 12th century that somebody began to say, this kind of paints an immoral picture of God, and we need to reinterpret it. So what Gustav Allen did was he went back and he said, no, actually those people who felt it had to be reinterpreted because they uh, uh, of a moral issue that it created in their minds in the, in the, in, in the heart of God... They just didn't understand what the early church fathers were talking about. They were using they were using metaphors to talk about how humanity had been held captive by Satan, humanity had been held captive by sin, and humanity had been held captive by death. So you got to ask yourself, what's the problem that the death of Jesus is solving? Is it solving the problem of God who can't forgive you unless he gets his blood sacrifice and pound of flesh? Or is it solving the problem that there are forces that are holding you in captive and so God came as a human being in order to deal with those forces to set the rest of humanity free? And so what Gustav Allen is saying is that the church held down through the ages that the original teaching of the apostles and the original teaching of the early church fathers was this idea that Jesus had to go and triumph over these forces. And that theory of the atonement is called the Christus Victor view. Is everybody with me? All right. Now we get to this guy, Anselm of Canterbury, who was around from 1033 to 1109. And this is the first time in church history, I want you to hear this very clearly, this is the first time in church history that a problem that God has needs to be solved. I want you to understand that for 1,100 years, nobody preached the gospel like most of you heard it. And no Christian got saved like you got saved praying the sinner's prayer. It just didn't happen. The sinner's prayer came apart as the came about as a part of the great awakening movement in our country, which was after our country was founded, and we're only what two hundred and fifty years old or something. So it's only been in the last 250 years that people have been receiving Jesus as Lord by praying the sinner's prayer and getting saved. So how are people, if if that's what you have to have, if that's what you need to be a believer and to be saved, how was anybody getting saved before that? And what is God's problem that he didn't think of this before? It's just the truth. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody. I'm just trying to educate you about what is actually factually true. Show me one person, show me one person in the book of Acts who comes forward and prays the sinner's prayer. When when they asked Peter, what must we do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. Now we can argue whether baptism is essential, but I'm going to tell you right now, you don't have one verse for a sinner's prayer. All right. Now here's what happened. Here's what happened at a, about a thousand years, thousand eleven hundred years after the time of Christ. The church was one. It was completely one. There was one church. If you went to the church in Rome, they were in fellowship with the church in Turkey. <laughs> they were in fellowship with the church in wherever. And you could expect this, and they all followed the same thing. You can expect the same service, just like if you go to a Catholic church today, or you go to a Greek Orthodox church today, you can pretty much expect the same thing around the world. 
The church existed like that for a thousand years. Then it split into the East and the West, which is why you have Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. They split. The Eastern Church has never taught or wrestled with the views we will now look at. That right there ought to tell you something. They don't even ask the questions. They don't even have these kind of discussions. This is uniquely the Latin Western Church. Everything we're going to look at from here forward, except until maybe when we get to my view, and who knows. Maybe somebody, maybe someday, a hundred years from now, somebody will have my picture and say. Because really, guys, that, I mean, but, but wait, but no, I'm not looking for that. Really, what, what we're doing is we're taking people's opinions, what the cross meant to them in their culture, in their context, in their life situation, based on their reading and their understanding and their engagement with God, and we're trying to push it on everybody else and make it binding and say everybody has to believe this or they're not saved. That's just what we're doing. And what happens is, when you don't know who made the map, let, let's get this way, the map is not the territory. Everybody say that with me. The map... Is not the territory. What does that mean? That means that if I want to go to New York City, I cannot open up a map of New York, stand on the place, the little thing that says New York City, or I can't take a map of New York City, throw it on the floor and stand on it and say, I'm in New York City. I mean, hopefully you would think I was insane. Right? And so what we are given, what I give you, what anybody gives you in terms of theology, preaching, teaching, whatever, is merely a map that is hopefully meant to point you to the reality of a relationship with God that you have for yourself, that you know for yourself, and that you experience for yourself. Right? But when, here's the problem, when you don't know it's a map, you can think it's the territory. And what's worse, if you don't know it's a map and you don't know who the map maker was, then it feels like it came from God. Anytime you say, I should do this, or I shouldn't do that, who said? Most of the time you don't even bother to think. Well, I shouldn't have worn that outfit to that party. Why? You don't know. Like who said, like, 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 I remember my grandma used to say, used to tell you guys something like, you don't wear white after what, Labor Day or something? You don't wear white after Labor Day, right? Does anybody follow that anymore? But it was an, uh, it was a law, man. I mean, people, oh my God, it's, it's the week after Labor Day and I wore white. Well, it's like, when you don't know who the map maker is, it's like the universe says this is how it is. And if somebody wore white back then, oh my God, don't they know they're not supposed to wear white after Labor Day? And you never ask yourself, who said? Who said it was that way? So if you don't know who the map maker is, then it feels even more like it comes from God. So all I'm trying to do is tell you who the map makers are. And it wasn't God came down from heaven and showed somebody on a mountain this is how it's supposed to be. If you need that, go be a Muslim. Because that's what Muhammad claimed. One of the archangels, I think it was Gabriel, came and told him how 
Christians had messed everything up and here's how it's really supposed to be and dictated to him the Koran. If you need that, go be a Muslim. Christianity has never functioned that way. There has never been any claims like that within the Christian scriptures that it happened that way. Yeah, it went over about like I thought it would. Now, Anselm is wrestling with this idea of the ransom theory, and he says, this just can't be. God couldn't have deceived the devil. God couldn't have been, you know, given a gift and then taken it back. Right? So, he began to look for a different meaning. Now, during that time in Europe, he existed in what's called a feudal honor culture. Now, bear with me, because this is really important to understand. In that culture of the day, here's how the law operated. You ready? It was not like today. Just look at your neighbor and say, it wasn't like it is today. Okay, you are fortunate enough, and you and I are fortunate enough to live in a country that is that tries in principle at least to say that all men were created equal. Ladies, you're included in that, right? At least now you are. You weren't then, but you are now. Um, all men are created equal. Well, you couldn't vote, you know, I mean, so come on, you weren't included. But but all people were created, it's, it's, it's evolved, right? It's grown. So the principle's there. All people were created equal with the right to what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So it's the first uh, government system that's set up with laws that are not designed to control people, but laws that were designed to free people and protect their freedoms. Now, whether or not we have stayed true to that, we can argue all day long, but that's still the founding idea, and I think it's a wonderful idea, and I think it was a God idea. Are you, are you breathing? Are you with me? Right? It wasn't so in, in a thousand year, uh, years ago. In fact, this is part of what caused the revolution to begin with was because you, the law was based on the honor that a person received based on the family into which they were born. And if you were higher up the ladder, the king having the most honor, but below that you had dukes, you had lords, you had peasants. Are are you tracking with me? And the punishment for crime was because not everyone's right was created equal. Because in that society, you weren't all created equal. The king was chosen by God to be born a king, therefore he had more honor. The duke was chosen by God to be born in a duke family, therefore he was more important. If you were a peasant, you were nothing. So the way that justice was administered was this. If you stole from a peasant, eh, probably nothing's going to happen. Because that peasant doesn't have any honor. So you didn't offend. You just, yeah, you guys have to steal from each other because you're starving. You steal from a duke. Well, now maybe you get your hand cut off. You steal from a lord. Okay, now maybe you're going to die because the lord has more value than the duke or the duke has more value than the lord, I don't remember. But you you get the point. If you steal from the king, we're going to wipe out your entire village. Because the idea was, not the crime itself, but the person against whom the crime was committed and how much honor did you take from them when you committed that crime. Does everybody understand? So for Anselm, who has the most honor? Who has more honor than the king? God. So when Adam sinned or when you sinned, whose honor was being offended? God's. Well, now we've got a problem. Because honor has to be satisfied. You got it? 
The king is offended. His honor is damaged. His honor has to be satisfied. So he's going to wipe out your whole village because just killing you isn't going to be enough to satisfy his honor because he has too much. Got it? God has eternal honor. God has forever honor. So who can satisfy, whose death is going to satisfy the honor of God when God's honor is offended? God's honor, God's death. So Jesus, God manifested in the flesh, had to die as a human being in order to settle humanity's honor debt before God. And that's the beginning of how we got here today. But remember, the Eastern Church didn't have to deal with it. They didn't have an Anselm. They didn't have this concept at all. They hold to a Christus Victor view in the Eastern Church. And actually, the recovery of the divine self, Irenaeus. All right. Then we come to the penal substitution view. Are you bored yet? No. I'm sorry if you are. I still want to get this out here. Okay, Burl's not, so that's cool. Um, <laughs> the rest of you, I don't know. You know. This starts with John Calvin. Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, right? This starts with John Calvin who was a lawyer in a different kind of court system because we're centuries down the road, 1509 to 1564. So by this time, the beginning of what we see today as our judicial system is starting to take shape, right? Laws are still different, but it's starting to take shape. He started as a lawyer, and so he takes the atonement language and he applies it to the model of criminal law. So anytime you've had a track or you've had somebody present the gospel, with, starting with God as the judge, and that's the whole problem, is we start with God as a judge. We take, an, we take an image that was crafted by man and we put it on God and say, this is what God is like. So anytime that someone presents the gospel to you, it's like this. It's like you're standing before the judge. And there is a penalty that you have to pay for a crime that you committed. And the judge says, I will pay the penalty myself. And he brings down the gavel and pays the penalty and lets you go. Anybody ever heard a presentation, something like that, seen or read a track, something like that? Here's where it comes from. 1,500 years. How in the world did the church survive for 1,500 years before John Calvin? So he said this, God was angry at humanity for their sin and being both just and merciful needed a way to reconcile the two. If God forgives sin without punishment, he is not being just. But God, if he just punishes sin without mercy, is not being loving. So he's conflicted within himself. So his justice has to be satisfied in order for his mercy to happen. So what does he do? <laughs> well, he takes all your sins, somehow mystically, uh, magically, know, knows what you're going to do 2,000 or years later, or who knows how long this thing's going to go on. Sherry, he knew all the horrible things you were going to do uh, growing up, and Jack, he knew all the, the terrible things you were going to do. And so somehow in the mind of God, he saw that. So he took all that somehow, because it, it exists somewhere. No one knows where it exists. No one knows how this happens. But somehow, magically, that sin has some kind of reality or substance. So we don't know how it does, but he takes it and he puts it on Jesus. And now when God's looking at Jesus on the cross, he's not seeing his son. He's seeing Jack and he's seeing Sherry and he's seeing Aaron and he's seeing Nick and he is ticked. 
And rightfully so, Jack says. Rightfully so, yeah, yeah. And so here comes the wrath of God and he strikes Jesus while he's on the cross. Because when he's striking Jesus, he's striking you. And so therefore, the justice of God is being meted out against you. The wrath of God is being meted out against you in Jesus. And this is an act of love. This is an act of psychosis and schizophrenia (laughs) that we attribute to the divine. And then what he does is he takes all the good behavior that Jesus had and he somehow takes it from him. I don't know how. We don't know how he does this. But he somehow takes all this good behavior from Jesus and then he puts it on Nick. And so now he doesn't see horrible Nick over here. He sees, oh, wonderful Nick because he's done everything I've commanded him to do because look, there's Jesus. And and so preachers will say dumb things like, God sees you through the blood. God sees you in Christ. God doesn't see you as you are. I mean, how much does this help people? God doesn't see you as you are. God sees you in Christ. Damn. Sorry, Mom. I mean, I really need God to see me as I am because I'm the one that's hurting. I'm the one that's struggling. I'm the one that's dealing. I mean, Jesus, He already did His thing and He was perfect. If God sees me as Jesus, man, I'm in trouble. I need Him to see me as me. I need to see Him to see my mess. I need Him to see my hurt. I need Him to see my struggle. And get down here and help me quick. According to scholar N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright's an amazing scholar. He says this, penal substitutionary atonement, the reason it was so important to the reformers and Protestant theology was that it reputed the Catholic teaching of purgatory. So Catholics taught if you were baptized a Catholic, you were saved, right? Which most people were. But you would still be punished for your sins in purgatory. So what John Calvin did was they wanted to do away with purgatory as a doctrine. So he says, no, God punished Jesus, and if God punished Jesus, he can no longer punish you. He would be unjust to punish Jesus for your sins and then punish you as well. How many of you have heard that preached? It was reactionary. But again, I don't want to be too hard on John Calvin, because he's finding meaning in the cross that speaks to his situation and his cultural context. It's meaning that was specific to him. But because he got elevated and he wrote books, it became somehow the law of God in the land because we forgot who the map maker was. And the map is not the territory. Martin Luther, this idea that you became the righteousness of God in Christ, that God sees you in righteousness, this actually goes back to Martin Luther and indulgences. The reason the Reformation happened is because the Catholic Church was selling indulgences. Does anyone know why the Catholic Church was selling indulgences? Yeah, of course to make money. But what, but what was the bait? Today on TBN, you know, you go, oh, wait, I got a scripture. Look at, bring that camera right here. I got a scripture, Psalm 74.10. And if you'll send $74.10, this blessing will be yours. If you want tenfold this blessing, you'll send $740.10. And if you want a thousandfold blessing, you'll send $74,000. $7,400. But it's up to you. Whatever measure you use, God will measure back to you. That's how we do it today. But how'd they do it back then? 
So what's, what's the hook for somebody? Oh my God. And so you know what they end up doing? They end up taking from people that, that are stuck in magical things. Oh my God. I need money. Oh, I want, I want that thousand. Oh man, you know, that, that tenfold blessing sounds a lot better. I was only going to send $74 and man, that's a great scripture and I could really use that because, you know, Uncle Fred over here could use this. And, and so you write the check. What was the motivation back then? The motivation back then was this. By this time, the Catholic Church had pretty much said, you have to be celibate. <laughs> They had an idea of what saints were. Saints gave up any pleasure in this world at all. So you were celibate, you were poor, you were out there doing God's work. Well, what about the people that were rich and whoremongering? But they were baptized. So here's what the church said. There are some saints, like, like for us today, think of like a Mother Teresa walking the streets, giving up life, her life, walking the streets of Calcutta and taking care of, of the, the untouchables in India. Right? She overindulged in piety. So she earned some extra credit. Now she's not going to spend any time in purgatory at all. They made her a saint right away. Which the Catholic Church never does. So she really overindulged. So what they're saying is now there's extra credit available. So those of you that are, that are, that are indulging in sin over here, if you'll give a little bit of that money to the church, then we will take her indulgences in piety and we'll give some of it to you so that when you get to heaven, God will see a little bit of Mother Teresa in you. So Martin Luther said, no, Jesus indulged for all humanity in righteousness. He was so saintly, he was so pious, that he overindulged not only for himself, but for everybody. And you don't have to, and here's the good news, you don't have to buy it, you just have to believe it. So now Romans gets read, the book of Romans gets read and interpreted and translated, not through the eyes of 2nd century Paul, or 1st century Paul, sorry, 1st century Paul, 2nd temple Judaism, but through the eyes of our reformers. So things that should be translated as teaching gets translated as law. So you have all this law court metaphor because most of your Bible is being produced and paid for by, guess what? Protestant denominations. Who do you think funds that stuff? Who do you think pays for the scholars to interpret it? The the NIV came out with a women's study Bible, and all they did was took the gender-neutral language of the Bible and conveyed it. Like, for example, the word brethren in our culture implies gender. Brethren, cistern, not cistern. <laughs> in the Greek, it means from the same womb. It's gender neutral, from the same womb. So all they did was go in and translate it instead of brethren, uh, siblings, brothers and sisters. There was such an outcry from the conservative Christians and evangelicals that they had to pull it off the presses. I'm sorry, but integrity to the translation and truth is not what's driving your Bible today. All right. You got it? Okay, I got to move on. I got to get through this. Now, here's... 
so what the cross means to me, I, I want to go back to God became man that man might become divine. And I'm not going to keep you real long. I'm just going to give you an introduction. God became man that man might become divine. And I want to read you some, or that man might discover the divine within himself. Because I really think that's what's happening. It's not a transaction that's happening outside of you. All of this stuff that I've been talking about is something happening outside of you. Whether it's the sin, death, and the devil, whether it's God's wrath, whatever it is, it has nothing to do with your inner person. Carl Jung said this, and I think it's amazing. He said, the Western attitude, with its emphasis on the object, tends to fix the ideal, which is Christ, in the outward aspect, and thus rob it of its mysterious relation to the inner person. He goes on to say this, Christ, the ideal, took upon himself the sins of the world. But if the ideal is totally outside, then the sins of the individual are also outside. And consequently, he is more of a fragment than ever. Since superficial misunderstanding conveniently enables him or her to quite literally cast his sins upon Christ and thus evade his or her deepest responsibilities, which is contrary to the spirit of Christianity. So what I'm suggesting to you is that what we see in the cross is that something happened to Jesus externally in the world out there as a model of something that must happen in you internally. Not a transaction between God and himself, not God paying ransom to himself, satisfying his own wrath, paying ransom to the devil, none of that. The Bible supports this. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into his death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. See, Paul's saying what you see happening out there is what happened in you. He says it more succinctly here. I have been crucified with Christ. See, we have told people for, for at least 200 years in our country, longer, maybe since the Reformation, you have to believe in a historical person and a historical event, and that's the real teeth and meat and substance of Christianity. And Paul never taught that. Paul preached Christ in you, the hope of glory, and Christ cre- preached the crucifixion, not as a historical event. If you don't believe it, you won't be saved. That, that had nothing to do with it. Paul's saying if the crucifixion doesn't happen in you, then the life of Christ can never be liberated inside of you and you'll never express your fullest potential and you'll never be the image of God that God created you to be and you'll never have the most that life intended you to have. I believe Carl Jung, and I'm sorry, I believe that Paul agrees with Carl Jung that it has to touch the inner man, something has to happen inside of you, something has to happen in your soul and it is not a mere transaction that God had to work out within himself. The issue is your heart, not God's heart. <laughs> Wasn't God's heart, I don't know if I want to be just or I want to be merciful, I can't figure it out. Okay, well, let's do this. Alright. In other words, the cross liberates you to express the Christ who is within you, and it empowers you to walk in newness of life. Is there something you want to change in your life? Is there some new thing that you want to walk into and you want to experience? Paul said in Romans 6, the power of the crucifixion 
in you empowers you to step out of the bondage of the old, step out of the torment of the old, and move into the power of resurrected life, the power of the divine life. Find the div- What is Christ? What is it? If He says Christ is living in me, if it isn't the divine self within Him. Ah, I'm sorry if this bores you. <laughs> Jesus in His passion entered fully and deeply into the fallenness of our souls. And His death and resurrection, when internalized, provides power to us by the Spirit to be raised up to the heights of ecstasy and enlightenment. Look at this, Acts 2, 24-28. Whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that He should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand, I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades or in hell. Peter is saying this is a prophecy about Jesus. And Jesus says you will not leave my soul in hell. Nor will you allow the Holy One to see corruption. Now people have taken this, and I taught this at one time because it was what I was taught. That the death on the cross wasn't enough. God was so angry, He had to send Jesus' soul to hell and punish Him in hell. And they would use this verse. You'll not leave His soul in Hades. When did Jesus' soul go to hell? You, you go up to most Christians and say, Jesus went to hell. Just, just try that. Did you know Jesus went to hell? But right here He's talking about the sufferings of His soul in hell. Because, see, you think hell exists somewhere. We don't know where it is. Somewhere, I don't know, under the earth, somewhere. Another planet, someplace in the spiritual dimension, someplace, is this place where God torments the soul forever and ever with fire. And what you don't realize is most of us, a lot of us are living in hell right now. <laughs> Thank you. The hell of human existence apart from God. The hell of anxiety. The hell of depression. My God, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medicine is a multi-billion dollar industry. Why? Because in the Western world, our gospel, our Christ has done nothing to touch the soul and the need of humanity because it's all outside of them. And we say, just pray the prayer and when you die, we'll all get to heaven and sing and shout the victory. At least the Buddhists... Give you something to do that will help you feel better. If you practice it. I'm sorry, I'm being ugly. I don't, I don't mean to be, I'm just... I'm just saying, that's why our culture is listening to the Dalai Lama. There are more people in our country listening to the Dalai Lama and reading his books today than are, reading, than are listening to Joel Osteen or reading your Christian books. Why? Because we lost the soul because we lost something that would touch the soul. When was his soul in hell? Matthew 26, 38 through 39. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He's doing this before he dies. David said the, the, the pains of death and the, and, the, and the horrors of Sheol was in his soul. It's a state of consciousness that you and I can create and live in right now if we want to. Or we can be set free from. Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah prophesied it. He didn't say he was. 
stricken by God and afflicted. It said we would esteem him as such. But it wasn't anything about God that had to change. It was us that had to change. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Thank you. Let me give you a few things. How does this happen? Um, Contemplation on the cross. What do I mean by that? Just looking at the image itself and thinking about it begins to transmit the energy of it into your heart. Just listening to Paul said, the preaching of the cross was the power of God. If you read it carefully, he didn't say the event itself. He said the event when it's preached. Why? Because when you hear it, it's so powerful, it begins to penetrate your consciousness and do its work. Just hearing it, just thinking about it, just looking at it, begins to transform your consciousness and lift you out of the hell of your soul of the hell of agony into the heights of ecstasy. Oop. I don't know why I thought I had to switch. Second, recognize your own need for deep inward transformation and that the cross has the power to liberate your mind from darkness, materialism, and death. Third, we realize the roles we occupy in this life as defined by this world is not the real. In other words, here's, here's the thing. This is all about the liberation of your consciousness. I'll, I'll get into this more. It's about liberating you from darkness and materialism where you think all you are is that body that has 70 years, 80 years, whatever to live, and you're, you've already marked off so many. So you've only got this little bit of mountain time left. It's that part of you that thinks you're your job, that thinks you're... Your performance, that thinks you're your right or wrong, that thinks you're your status, that thinks you're your opinions, that identifies as Republican or Democrat, that identifies as Christian or non-Christian. And your whole identity gets locked into that. When the reality is you came from the light, you came from heaven, you came here with a soul that wanted to grow and learn things and develop and mature and experience. But you get so locked into this illusion of who you are in your daily life that you cannot function at all as a child of God. Therefore, you can bring no power into a situation to change your life. You can't change your marriage. You can't figure out how to change your marriage. You can't change your your financial situation. You can't figure out how to change it. You can't heal your body. You can't figure out how to heal it. All that stuff's available to you as the power of Christ in you, but you've got to be liberated from this limited, narrow thinking of who you think you are. Thank you. And the cross has the power to do that. And only the cross has the power to do that for you. Finally, you surrender your will to God. What did Jesus say? Not my will, but thine be done. Right? Simple, right? And then finally, this one. You have to accept a new reality. You have to accept a new reality. So you can affirm to yourself continually that you, who you really are is divine and an expression of Christ rather than identifying with the you as you are in this world. 
In other words, I begin to affirm there is something beyond the role that I'm playing. I'm something more than Aaron Tomlinson. That's just a label I use to, so you, to function in this society. It's not who I am. It's on my birth certificate. I'm more than an American citizen. I'm more than just my Scotch-Irish blood and heritage. Found out I'm supposed to wear orange on St. Patrick's Day. I don't know how I lived this long without knowing I'm supposed to wear orange on St. Patrick's Day. So I can identify as an Irish Protestant instead of green where I identify as an Irish Catholic. Who, who, who even, see, I didn't even know. I didn't even know. Thank you, whoever told me that. I don't want to be an Irish Catholic. But that, but, and, and we, we looked it up on the internet. I said, oh, be careful where you wear orange because that might start a fight. Think about where the craziness of humanity. We are all out of our freaking minds. I'm going to fight you because you wore orange on St. Patrick's Day. You wore the wrong color. Or, yeah, I'm going to fight. Yeah. I read, I read something the other day. You think football fans in America are bad? I read something about uh, in the UK. Uh, where a team, this was a few years ago, where a team did poorly and a bus driver ran over a group of people wearing the other team's colors. The team that beat them. I mean, could you imagine that? It'd be like the, the Broncos going into Raiders Stadium or whatever and, and winning and some bus driver sees a group coming out in their orange stuff and just decides to run them down. People are crazy, but that's how far that egoic mind will take you. <laughs> But you realize you're more than that. You're bigger than that. You're, you're something else. And listen, in the core of your being, in the core of your essence, you are divine. Whether you recognize it or not, whether you ever find it out in this life or not, in the core of your essence, you carry the light of Christ and you are divine. And what, and what is meant to happen to you and me is something to so penetrate us so deeply that the veil gets rent and the light and glory of who we are can shine out. But if you never realize that you're going to die and return to God, God is not so petty and small that he has to punish somebody to forgive you. My dog makes me mad. I don't have to go spank my son and say, okay, now I can forgive him, get along with the dog. There's things, think about your sons and daughters. There are things that they will do that you will forgive instantly that you would say God would punish them for all eternity in torment, in conscious torment. How are you not elevating your ability to love and forgive and be gracious above that of God? Because that is not God. That is an imagination, that is a false God, that is an imaginary God that requires a blood sacrifice to forgive you. That God does not exist. Let's stand up. I know I'm being provocative, but I'm just, I'm provoked. I'll just be honest about it. I think that other is so toxic. I think it is so spiritually damaging. I think it's so psychologically and emotionally damaging. And I think it is offensive to think of God in that way.
And I think without that kind of harsh language, sometimes we need that to wake us up so you can realize that God does not exist, that God is false, that God is an idol, that God is a figment of someone's imagination, that was somebody being a map maker who made meaning out of the cross in their context, in their situation, that empowered them because of the power of the cross to touch a person internally. It gave them a meaning that empowered the church to thrust forward out of the dark ages of the Catholic Church, but it is by no means the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, let's lift our hands. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise today. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence to touch our hearts and our lives. Father, I thank you that because of the power of the cross, we can be set free when there's no hope. Because of the power of the cross, we can be lifted out of our own self-created hells of judgmentalism and torment and legalism and moralism and anxiety and fear and depression. I thank you, Lord, that we can be raised up out of all of that into the bliss of your love, your peace, your joy, your goodness, your kindness, your mercy that endures forever, your love that is from everlasting to everlasting. Father, I thank you for dispelling the darkness of anxiety. I thank you for dispelling the darkness of oppression and depression. I thank you for breaking the chains of addiction and and compulsive behaviors and all the things that drive us to create our own hells. That it's not you punishing us oftentimes, Lord. It's our own actions, choices, words, beliefs, and inner realities that creates most of the pain in our lives. But I thank you that you've given us an answer. And I thank you that you can save us from ourselves and set us free. And I pray the power of this, Father, will penetrate our hearts and minds and go around the world. I pray that that God, that false God, who's angry and vengeful and judgmental and who punishes for punishment's sake, would fall in our lifetime and in our period and become as archaic as Zeus, (laughs) as archaic as ancient gods of old that no one believes in anymore, would you move by your spirit in such a powerful way that that idol would topple and that God would become like one of them. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.